Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, here's the question everyone is asking at the moment. Is the economic crunch going to morph and mess marketing plans and budgets this year or not? And what sort of data and signals are marketers looking at to prepare budgets and strategy for whatever scenario is coming? What are the products, price points, channel mix, messaging and customers should they focus on if things head south? And what impact will marketing budget cuts or a shift to performance marketing have on revenues and the P&L? How many marketers can even answer those questions with confidence? That's the great question. But the CMO of UE, Angela Greenwood, and PointsBet Head of Digital Strategy, Kelvin Kane, are on the mics today with Henry Innes, CEO of automated econometrics firm Mutinex, to unpack their current thinking. Angela, for instance, among a bunch of agenda items, wants better understanding of how creative contributes to results, not just the channel choice. While Kelvin is chasing more sophisticated, fast, and accurate attribution models because of Apple's iOS privacy changes and the impending end of third-party cookies, have had massive impacts. For Henry, his big mission this year is convincing finance teams to not cut brand investment too deeply because that is where most of the damage is being wreaked for near-term business growth. Henry sees the aggregate data from over $1 billion in media investment from blue-chip companies in the Mutinix spend pool, and some patterns are emerging. So enough from me. Let's find out. Welcome to you all. This is going to be an interesting one, I think. It's, it's very timely. Henry, to you first, what are you seeing out there in brand land? Any interesting observations? Is there much course correction underway or needed at the moment as we look into 2023? Well, I think um, first interesting thing, I mean, we, we recently launched a new feature around brand equity, something that's been in testing for quite some time. And I know it's got many marketers very excited. What we're seeing is that the two things that are very, very important, the brand or, or mass market spend as we kind of define it, tends to have a pretty large halo and flow-on effect on, on the rest of the business and its its effect, which isn't well captured in conventional attribution simply because of, you know, the way that it's targeted and things like that. And so just because it's not easily visible, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And so, and it's easy to cut the things that aren't, aren't necessarily visible, but might actually cause you the most pain. Feels a little bit ironic given my hit that I'm saying that. But, yes, um, I would. So, we may inform the listener a little later on about your predicament, Henry. But let's get to the let's get to the data. <laughs> so the, the second thing is that so we see that mass market spend as being really really important, hard to track, has huge impact on sales because it's not very visible in conventional attribution. It's easy to cut and it's an easy target in the boardroom. So that's the first thing that we we're kind of seeing that we're trying to almost help our customers protect against to a large degree. Mm. And just on that though, Henry, is there a bit of force there pushing back on that at the moment for 23, do you think? There's, there's some the forces of finance and beyond? I think it really depends on the category and the customer. Like I don't right. think you can be drawn on a specific like there's no specific generalized trend, but I but but you know, you've seen some things go up, some things go down. The second kind of thing that I kind of see as very, very important is you know, we, we've seen quite clearly the relationship between strong brand equity metrics and high baseline sales and things like that. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, high baseline sales effectively means, you know, your resting sales trend is largely affected by 
what your brand awareness is. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like you can't have a strong resting baseline sales trend if people don't know who you are and they don't know whether or not to consider your product. So it intuitively stacks up that brand equity metrics should have a disproportionate impact on your sales trend. Quantifying that's, again, really, really hard. So what we're kind of seeing a lot of is brands now going, well, actually, I want to be linking those brand equity metrics to my sales trend because I need Mm. to actually more deeply understand and present the impact of kind of, you know, letting those brand metrics atrophy or deteriorate. Now, the temptation whenever interest rates go up in particular, what happens when an interest rate goes up is suddenly every company that has debt or debt instruments, which is most companies, tends to have their interest rate bills go up which means there needs to be savings found elsewhere. And the other challenge is that most finance teams weren't able to calibrate towards that because the RBA gave us some really helpful guidance that they weren't raising rates till 2024. Great job there. Um, <laughs> so what, kind of, what that kind of meant is that all financial planning didn't accommodate for those rate rises coming through like that. And so the RBA has not just given bad guidance to the consumers, they're actually given bad guidance to businesses. And that's meant that people are scrambling to find budgets probably more than they would have had to because of that poor guidance. Mm. So that means, so hence why you've got some short-term activity or attention being paid to where they can offset costs. I think, there's just, more, I think there's just more scrutiny on, on, on costs mm. than there ever was, but that's natural when the economy is, is a, as it is. Like, you know, it's easy in a boom, like when things are booming and, you know, to not have to pay that much attention to to kind of the economy versus now it's just, um, you know, everyone's going, actually, you know, we probably just need to be, be a little bit more mindful of where we spend. I, but again, I wouldn't want to put that to anybody's specific context. It's yeah. just it's a general thing that happens when economies start to, you know, become a little bit more. I, I hope we'll dig into this a little bit deeper, but just as a tease, Henry, what you're saying with this brand equity product that you've got is have, have you found a way to link all of that together, and it was very impressive. Yes. Was it hard? We have the first always-on generalised model, which is able to link brand equity, preference, salience, consideration metrics, and output that into what that will do from a generalised revenue perspective. And we've cracked that at scale across any kind of category and customer, and nobody else has ever built a piece of artificial intelligence in that space. I can confidently say we've blown everyone out of the water with that. And so that will mean, though, that the marketers that are on the podcast today, if they were using that product, could look at their investment, their marketing investment, and be able to see what impact that is having at what point and what time frame to their sales. Is that right? So, so not just that, what, they were, what both marketers on, on the call will definitely be able to do going forward. By the way, that is they have names, I should say. It's it's Angela and Calvin, I should say. I oh, my my fault. Both and Calvin and their organizations will definitely be able to do is is take the brand equity and preference metrics that they track, put those against the overall baseline sales trend that is happening within their businesses and be able to understand the contribution of brand metrics to that overall sales trend, which is a really cool thing to do. Well, look, if you've really done that, you might be famous one day very soon, Henry. Kelvin, what are you... Firstly, I had a question for you that's now going to go... I have to sort of ask you a direct response to what Henry's just talked because I didn't see that coming. If it's the case, how do you view that, what, that, that scenario? Uh, look, it's incredibly exciting. 
I think it's one of the greatest challenges, you know, um, especially in the conversation around the balance of brand versus acquisition dollars in market. To provide some context, we obviously operate an extremely competitive landscape. So I think last count, there are 88 different wagering uh, companies active in Australia at the moment. And obviously, we've come out of a, a pandemic period that's really buoyed our industry. So having everyone suck their couches for two years, apparently, was very good for, for business. So we're entering this new economic period with a lot of uncertainty, you know, now that people can go out and venture Will the, the market pool decrease? Um, you know, the sensitivity around consumer spending, will that impact how much people are willing to gamble? And therefore, what's that going to have on us as an industry? Spreading, you know, a, a pie that's now a lot smaller across 88 different competitors. Um, yeah. Well, listen, we may get back to the brand equity scenario a little bit later, but um, I did want to ask you in terms of, you've sort of mentioned you've got a stack of competitive and media challenges coming on at you and and more specifically, iOS changes are having uh, an impact, particularly around your last click attribution. What are a couple of your biggest pain points at the moment, um, Kelvin, and, and how? what are your tactics? How are your tactics in getting, getting that right, addressing it? Yeah, it's a funny one. I mean, never, you asked me five years ago if, if I would be sitting in a company happily working to a last click attribution model. Um, yes. I would tell you absolutely not. But in reality, the changes that iOS have introduced, the you know, impending depreciation of the cookie means that it's probably one of the, the fewer direct links we have to attributing a media channel with an end result. And ultimately, you know, part of the reason for us engaging in economic remodeling was to kind of shift away from that from a uh, you know a planning and thinking perspective and start recognizing where our media is having the most influence and also recognize the impact of brand spend on our bottom line you know commenting on what henry touched on in terms of marketing spends being crunched and specifically in brand elements it's it's a natural symptom you know marketing especially in the wagering industry is one of the single largest line items in a pnl um, and so if you can cut budget from that PL or that line item, you're directly impacting your bottom line. And then if you go, okay, cool, where from that line item am I cutting budgets? You know, you look at tangibility. What do I know is definitely driving results to my brand? And obviously, you know, things like search are the last to go. Any kind of specific acquisition channels are the last to go because there is that fear of loss when you can attribute a sale directly to that channel. And therefore, you know, the less correlated items like video, high impact display, audio, etc., are the first things that cut because you can easily, I guess, with a, with a somewhat clear conscious say, I can't attribute sales to this channel and therefore it is unnecessary. Mm. But you, I mean, the last click thing is fascinating and I'm glad, at least relieved a little bit to hear say so you'd like to get past it. But you do have a sophisticated sort of approach to last click, don't you? And that you do recognise that there are a lot of inputs, a lot of other a lot of things that go on to get the performance channel action. So in search, there might be a whole bunch of brand stuff that goes in a search query. I know that brand, I'll probably click that one rather than one that I don't know. So you, you do factor that in somehow into your last click attribution. Is that right? Correct. So we, we've done a lot of analysis in terms of specific promotions or even markets and using control audiences to basically test exposure channels and then end result. So Obviously, there is, there is invariably noise around word of mouth and obviously the punting community have their Facebook groups, they have their social channels whereby they communicate certain offers that are available. And for us to be able to say, target a specific offer in a certain channel and then recognize the halo effect of different channels allows us to you know, I recognize, first of all, that this channel has a greater impact than what's being seen as a, you know, a first time better or a sign up. Um, acquisition, we know that it's likely probably only represented by 40% of that data and 60% of it is actually captured by other channels and the halo effect. So we're able to sort of marry that uplift, but 
obviously what we're able to do with Mutinex kind of amplifies the sophistication of that modeling beyond our kind of own capabilities to kind of really provide a, an overarching holistic lens on our marketing activity to the bottom line. And I might get your thoughts because I think, you know, in, in an earlier conversation, you, you suggested that you were also trying to get away f- a bit from last click and we might get to that in a second. But UE is a challenger brand, right? Um, although I think you've cracked a billion dollars in revenue. So it's that's starting to sound not so much a challenger, but it sounds quite big. Um, but what's pressing on your marketing agenda, Ange? I imagine you've got some big spending rivals you have to deal with too, like, like Kelvin. We absolutely do. And, and again, yeah, we're in a highly, highly competitive industry. And so for us, the challenge is always to scale profitably. And, and I suppose for us, we, we definitely pay a lot of attention to that, that sort of profitable, um, growth aspect of, you know, our return on media investment. So for us in a highly competitive category and in a category where people don't tend to spend a heck of a lot of time once they're in market, you know, that, that window, it can be quite short in terms of, oh, yes, okay, I'm going to shop around. Okay, I'm going to test the market and, and make a decision. That, that window can For me, that's about be, four hours, I reckon. Yeah, it's, it, it can be, you know, quite, you know, tight. So for us, I suppose, and, and for our competitors, that visibility, you know, for in-market audiences and being consistently present is key. But obviously, when you're up against the competition that has pretty deep pockets, um, you know, they can maintain, obviously, that, that share of voice with, with great consistency. So um, our challenge is one to obviously have a very sharp eye on performance, but also to be on the shopping list when people are going to get those quotes. So that is obviously a brand challenge and it's one that we absolutely recognise. So for us, it's about um, how do we really make sure we maintain brand familiarity and consideration while also making sure that our performance engine is very, very tightly calibrated. I think you said you've skewed historically to performance, but you're wanting to spend more attention or time around brand build. Is that right? Well, look, I think we we have definitely paid a lot of attention to performance, but we have also historically, you know, invested significantly in, for example, broadcast. And we understand the the value, well, I guess, of that of that reach and that presence. I think our opportunity is probably given, you know, we want to grow brand consideration and, and really educate Australia about what we stand for, I think there's an opportunity for us to get more presence potentially in the mid-funnel, in channels such as online video and social that help us unpack a little bit more around our value proposition and to connect our, our sort of historic focus on the sort of mass channels and performance to something that, that builds a little bit more in the mid-funnel. So what's been missing uh, for you in terms of your business intelligence signals around marketing and the impact that your activities are having in market and on customers? Clearly, both of you are working with Mutinex, but I'm just um, interested prior to this, what did you feel you needed that wasn't there? So look, we, we had done, as, as I imagine, quite a lot of brands do those sort of dips in time when it comes to sort of uh, media mix modelling. I think the challenge around those is that they can give you often a, a good rear view mirror, but they don't always give you that that sort of forward thinking and scenario planning that I think is critical when, you know, you are trying to uh, defend budgets or you are trying to, you know, demonstrate and model future return on investment. I think for me it's, you know, what I see as, as the advantage of something like Mutant X is that ability to not just look 
backwards and say, oh, yeah, we were pretty efficient, aren't we great? You know, everybody give marketing a big tick. But also to look forward and say, okay, what, what can we do and what impact can we have and predict? Got it. So the other thing that you, you raised uh, in the conversation earlier, which is really interesting, is how you unpack the effect of media and creativity, splitting channel to message. And it's, it's on everyone's you know, minds how you do it. How do you, how, how do you see you're going to do it, Ange? Yes. Well, I mean, I guess the, the first part of that equation has been obviously making sure we've got great data fidelity. And in, in digital channels, it's obviously a lot easier to achieve than in, in sort of offline channels. But, you know, being able to use things like material instructions and, and such like have, you know, give us that ability to be able to combine a view of campaign and creative to the media buy. And that's what we've been working on, you know, in partnership with Mutinex. And I think, I, I believe that is absolutely critical and I think it's something that's actually a, a lot of, you know, historical approaches to media mix modelling have often discounted. And, you know, we, we can get so obsessed about the channel optimization and forget about the biggest X factor in all of this, which is the message and the creative that you're putting into it. And I think where we really want to get to is also being able to look at, you know, creative format and creative placement level to look at, you know, which types of creative are actually more impactful for us. And I think that that will, you know, unlock a lot of optimization opportunity, not just in our media buy, but in our creative approach. Henry, so Mutinix can do this? It can unpack the creative component? Yeah, I mean, if the data is structured in the right way, we can now unpack you know, the creative granularity and things like that. There's other elements as well where we can infer, like, creative victims as well because, you know, creativity basically is the rate of impact and also, you know, how memorable or long that impact is. And because we have a, a time-varying model where our ad stocks are actually able to vary over time, you can kind of look at one campaign versus another and go, oh, well, this campaign lasted for, you know, say, this campaign we had market was lasting for four weeks or cut, you know, four weeks after it had some effect to the consumer versus this one had 16 weeks. So clearly this right. one was much far more effective and had a far higher ROI because of the creative that, uh, that it generated. So absolutely right. you can now do that stuff uh, within platform, yeah. And just getting back to your, you know, sort of brand build and the halo it has on performance, which I know you buy into, how's that go with your executive leadership? Has that been a process of understanding or do they get it as well? Where is, where is that at? The, I think they, they get it because the mission that I've clearly been given is make sure that we are on that shopping list and that is a brand challenge. I think the, it's probably more about, well, how do we go about it? And how do we make sure that um, whatever we're investing has driving a profitable outcome? And I guess that that then is the question mark around, okay, well, what what mix and and what type of um, tactics are we going to put behind it? Mm. And so I've got to get you on last click. Calvin's a sort of a, a, what do we call it, a a reluctant fan because it's basically the best option that maybe he's got. But where are you at with last click? Well, look, uh, absolutely, you know, it's something that is easy to measure, easy to see, and is difficult sometimes to move past because of its visibility. But then obviously the danger being that we are holding certain channels, firstly, probably to account into a higher level of accountability than others, potentially. 
and obviously missing the bigger picture around how they're all interacting with each other and that those all important halo effects. So I think the answer probably is that a lot of businesses, you know, like Calvin has said, would love to move past it, but without option B, it's difficult to move past it. So that, that is our mission as marketers to, to uncover the insights that enable us to do that. And I assume you're probably as enthusiastic as Calvin on the brand equity sort of tracking module that Henry's talking about, product that Henry's talking about? Hugely. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have not. I have not, but I can't wait to see it. What's the story, Henry? Neither Three of us on this are completely enamoured by it, but haven't seen it. We're in the process of getting the data together for that activation. So right. we're effectively, we work with brand tracking partners, which we need to cl- uh, collect the data and basically plug it into the platform so we can activate it. Well, um, look forward to that conversation um, a bit later on, Kelvin. So just while, while I've got you, Kelvin, the, just a really quick talk through on how, what's changed since um, some of the preparing for cookies or the end of cookies, third-party cookies, and what's happened with iOS. Very quickly, how have you managed around that um, in the last 12 months or so? I'll quickly kind of provide a bit of background to where the business is at and, and kind of the natural transition that we've taken and, and why it's very fortuitous that, you know, we've engaged Mutinex when we have. PointsBet launched in 2016 and effectively over the last five years, six years, we've been going through extremely rapid growth phase. And just, we still consider ourselves a challenger brand very much against the competitor set in market. But given when we launched, we're probably in a much more advantageous position than some of those who launched, you know, during or after the pandemic. And so... Our natural kind of business progression was shifting away from uh, rapid growth and moving more to kind of a sustainable growth model. And so with that becomes, you know, how do we spend more effectively in market? How do we find the right consumers to, to bring on board versus, you know, acquire at all cost? And so for us, the kind of natural, I guess, evolution to more sophisticated attribution um, was kind of natural progression because when you're obviously rapidly growing, you don't really care where they come from just as long as they come to the doors. And so, you know, you may argue that the attribution didn't need to be as accurate as it could have been because we could just see people coming on board and we're ensuring that our, you know, effective cost per actions were manageable and, and, you know, holistically below what we were kind of bringing in from a revenue standpoint. Whereas now when we've got, you know, a large customer set, you know, we're looking to, to move away from uh, sales promotions, so to speak, you know, or promotions, um, you know, of a certain nature in our market. We need to look at how do we grow sustainably? How do we reach our customers more accurately? And, you know, as Angela touched on, how do we deliver the right messages in the right moment to really increase our yield and our, our conversion ratios in the audience sets that matter? The really interesting thing about our industry, obviously, is we we operate at the speed of sport. And, you know, with all the sport going on any time in the world, it's incredibly challenging to to change creative as rapidly as as you could. So we, we change our creative in market weekly. Whilst we maintain, you know, brand templates or, you know, templates to a certain extent, the messaging itself is often changing on a weekly basis tied to what sporting events are happening, etc. So when you start peeling back the layers, you know, ideally we'd be targeting individuals with specific sporting events or, um, you know, sporting codes based on what they like to bet on that we can see. But obviously, as you can appreciate, when you're looking at the, the size of the, the customer pool where we're working with, the amount of platforms we work across, therefore the amount of creative that needs changing, it's a very, very challenging concept to actually execute. 
bring on the machines by the sounds of it. So just <laughs> going to that um, that point again, though. So uh, what has changed for you and how you go to market, what you manage, and what you do as a result of the iOS changes on, on privacy and the uh, sort of the impending, the coming end of uh, third-party cookies. What's changed in your on your day-to-day in terms of your channel mix and how you manage it? A lot of our tech partners have helped manage that transition. So previously working away from a deterministic attribution modeling, we can now use probabilistic modeling to a relatively high confidence, which helps us in things like optimization. So working in programmatic, um, you know, we can look at suspected conversions or apply a probabilistic conversion model to say that whilst, you know, the platform may not seen any specific conversion data, we can see in our internal systems that that's the likely outcome. And so you can continue to kind of invest in channels with some sort of confidence because of this probabilistic modeling. Aside from that, I mean, it's kind of where we're at now in terms of looking at our marketing mix and trying to recognize which channels, you know, um, through the modeling over-index on influence. Where's the ROAS being delivered? And kind of tying that back to our last click attribution model data to kind of see, all right, we know that investing in this channel over this period, we've seen last click through these channels here. So that helps us also budget for if we're going to invest, you know, a 10% increase here, what can we expect in other channels? What's the halo effect of that? And then plan accordingly. Yeah. And Angela, for you too, is there shifts before you get to Mutinex, just the way the broader market or macro pressures coming from iOS privacy changes, end of cookies and so forth, has that already had an impact on how you're thinking and your channel planning and what you're using or is it, are you still preparing? Similar to what Calvin said, it's really about how we've lent into, you know, our media partnerships and our sort of platform partnerships to, to address that. And we, we run an in-house agency model here. So we, we buy all of our media directly and we deal directly um, with the publishers, with the platforms. Is that digital and offline? Is it, is it traditional as well? Both, right. okay. yeah. So I think from that point of view, I think we're very focused on, you know, how we uh, leverage the power of those partnerships most effectively to uh, find the right solutions for us as a business. Henry, just in terms of uh, Kelvin's point about the probabilistic uh, modelling, what you're doing, does it get it's better? It can get better, it gets closer, it's more accurate. And what's that margin of error that maybe Kelvin's working on versus what you're doing? I just doing? think they're probably different and being used for different things. So I'm not sure they're not. Uh, I think we're comparing apples with tomatoes there. Chocolate. Yeah. 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 To clarify, okay. the probabilistic modelling looks at whereby Apple doesn't pass back confirmation of a certain event happening but our internal systems say, hey, this event happened and we can provide some kind of modelling to say, you know what, of the activity we have in market, this is the most likely source of that. Okay. And that's kind of where the probabilistic comes in. Got it. Whereas what Henry's doing is much more, you know, and I don't want to dumb it down to what it is, but effectively identifying the correlation and causation of our media spend in market to the tangible outcomes that we see on our bottom line. You should come be a salesperson for us, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> Did nine years in sales on, on that. Yeah. Uh, well, particularly, even I understood, and I'm just a dumb journo, so thanks for that, Calvin. Um, so, Henry, is this the typical challenge that marketers, clients are facing? Is this, is this a common conversation, what we're hearing today? Well, I think it's, it's a universal challenge for businesses, not just marketers, right? I mean, mm. if you think about marketing spend, and I think, Calvin, you made this point really well before, marketing spend is a huge amount of any business's kind of, you know, budget that, that's going out into the world. And so, you know, we've long had the position that, you know, if that investment, a lot of the time that investment hasn't been as accountable as it should have been, 
But if it was accountable, that'd actually be a huge benefit to the marketing budget because the marketing budget, a lot of the time, is doing probably harder work than people might want to believe in in a broader context. And so I think from our perspective, you know, we kind of look at it and we go, yes, people are searching for more accountability, but they're also looking to prove like the good things that are being done by marketing as well. Because, you know, the one thing that always kind of slightly staggers me is that when you see a marketing budget cut, but there's no revenue cut from a business. And of course, that's the quintessential case that has to happen. If you cut a marketing budget, you have to be prepared to cut your revenue. But for some reason, no, no one seems to make that link because that link isn't made explicit across all elements of, of, of the budget. And mm. so to my mind, a lot of what our, our passion and mission and focus is at the moment is actually how do we, how do we help prove that link and prove that link yeah. out and prove that link out across all facets of what's happening and then help people make better decisions about how to strengthen that link between business result and marketing investment as well. Because once you know the link, you know how to strengthen it. And so that's kind of how we think about it. And I think, you know, in this kind of environment, I think people are going to cut what's easy. And I think they're going to cut things without necessarily really thinking it through. And so, you know, right now, the position we're trying to get every kind of business that we talk to is understand what the link is, how to strengthen the link, and then on the rare chance that you're asked to cut it, be prepared to have the arguments and the data to say, well, actually, I expect you to cut revenue too, because I can tell you that's the one thing no one wants to do in this environment. Just, I think just to add to to what Henry's saying, I think as an industry, we love to label our media executions and our activities in market. And that's largely due to the fact of how we structure our teams, et cetera. You know, we talk about performance buying and, and brand buying and, you know, mid-funnel, et cetera. Whereas in reality, if we flip it and, and think of it as in the eyes of a consumer, there really is no difference between you know, a performance-based, you know, campaign or a, a brand-based campaign. If you add up all the touch points you have with a consumer, that's your brand in reality because perception is reality. And so if you only appear, you know, at the point of sale or near point of sale or point of decision with a pricing offer, you know, you can be kind of seen in that spectrum as a discount partner or, you know, a promotion-heavy partner, et cetera. Now, that has ramifications across different industries in different ways. For us, you know, a competitor that's offering high promotions, we look at it and go, that's going to cost them. You know, that's that's effectively a marketing spend to try and bring people into the platform. Now, you then have to try and recoup those costs somehow. So there's then a, a switch to how else they're making up that, that revenue they've just lost in that, you know, promotional sale. So when we think about the marketing spend, and, you know, to Henry's point around, you know, revenue cuts alongside marketing cuts, it makes a lot of sense because the the video you run in a, in a social placement or a, a catch-up TV placement, right, may be that trigger to have someone jump in the app and place a bet or jump online and get a quote for car insurance. There's kind of like a no scientific or safe way of saying that just because you labeled it a performance campaign, that that's only touching those trigger points. It can be any part of your marketing mix that causes that that final moment of decision-making. So it, it is somewhat dangerous to you know, blindly cut all brand spend because you know you need the modelling, the, the data to tell you where the influence is actually coming from. And then you, you know, you've been in some big enterprise before, you as well, so this is sort of almost gold dust or a gold link if you can get there, right, which is, okay, cut here and your revenue or your sales will be impacted. It's the proof point 
of that that's been the challenge, right? Because you'd get attention, I'd imagine, if you can empirically prove you cut me here or cut the budget here and this is what happens to top line. That's sort of the, that's the missing link, isn't it, Bean? Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, as, as we go, I think, as I said before, you know, that, that predictive capability around all of this then becomes absolutely critical, I think, when we start to get into those sort of budget setting discussions and, you know, our ambitions as a business each financial year, marketing is of obviously a very, very key element of all of those conversations. And obviously, the, the, the more intel that we can bring to the table that help us demonstrate what the ambition should be holistically, uh, that's fantastic. You know, as we come into tougher economic times, arguably, um, we're going to have consumers be more price sensitive than ever before, which clearly means that, um, you know, brand building, I think, in that environment also becomes more critical than ever before because reducing price sensitivity is obviously something that all marketers need to have at front of mind at all times. And brand is the buffer on that often. Yes. I mean, having said that, we obviously still want to be absolutely focused on providing great value. But um, mm. in the absence of, um, I suppose, a reason to choose a brand above price, then it can obviously become a race to the bottom. So just to add to that, that thing as well, I mean, when we're looking at you know, budget cuts and change of revenue, I think that both Andrew and I are kind of looking at the, the modelling going, where can I cut? marketing spend so that my revenue won't be impacted is to kind of identify right. where the wastage currently is. Mm. So it's kind of the flip of that kind of notion of, you know, you cut my, arguing you cut my budget, I cut my um, the revenue as well. The other point I had around, you know, brand building in a time of economic uh, challenges is if we think about a natural consumer journey and so whether your strategy is around growth or if it's, you know, just maintenance of your existing customer set or your market share, when you're looking at any kind of growth, someone has to be aware before they trial a brand. You know, you can't trial a brand without knowing about it logically. Um, and so you really have to think about what your first interaction with a user is going to be to then invoke that trial, right? So that's where brand can be really important in these economic times because you want to be a standout uh, as a look at our brand, you know, we empathize with you or, you know, we are like you, you empathize with us, etc. And that then leads to trial or loyalty, right? If your brand's not present in those moments, then effectively... You can't have that conversation. You can't have the interaction. You can't build that relationship with the customer. And even with retention, you know, you don't go, great, I've got you in my customer set. I'm not going to talk to you for six months while I save some cash. You have to kind of tailor the messaging to those customers to ensure they keep coming back to you. And that's not always going to be a point of sale or a promotion or, or anything like that at all. It's going to be around, look at how funny we are, look at how engaging we are, look how informed we are, or look how competitive we are. So whatever your, your messaging or your, your motivation for communication with your customer set has to be, whether it be product enhancements, you know, all those things are going to drive, you know, retention as well as growth, which does come from a brand communication standpoint. It's fascinating stuff. So look, I could go on for about three hours. I just want to get a final wrap up from all of you. Firstly, from Angela and, and Calvin on when are you expecting to see some of this implementation on your projects here become tangible. So are we talking three to six months or how far are we away and what do you expect then uh, happens? So we are, well, the platform is operational. Uh, I think so for us, it's now about, um, I think any intel of this nature, and, and I implemented a, a similar project of this nature in my previous role at Optus. And, and what I've observed, I suppose, about that process is that, yes, you can look at 
uh, information in a dashboard and, and sort of say, oh, yes, okay, that's great. I'm doing a great job as a marketer. But where the real power of it comes through is in that scenario modeling, the what ifs, and then placing some bets or making some changes in the mix and potentially doing that, you know, on a smaller scale or in one market or for one audience and sort of seeing how we can test and learn and incrementally shift the dial and, you know, build the proof for the business um, around, you know, the impact of the change that we're making. Got it. And for you, Kelvin? Yeah, so we've um, we've effectively started testing a few different hypotheses uh, using the model and also using some internal data that we've constructed as part of our long-term strategy. And so we, we've effectively started to implement some of those changes. For us, obviously, operating on a, a sporting calendar cadence, you know, the real testing period for us is, is the upcoming AFL and NRL launch period and then obviously into NBA finals. So we've got kind of a, an upcoming window of three to four months, which is you know going to be key to us in identifying, you know, have we found the special source or have some of our hypotheses been proven or, or debunked? And so it's going to be a really exciting time for us. Um, and so, yeah, ask me in ask me in three and a half, four months, and I might have some more colourful data for you. You shouldn't have said that because I will, um, <laughs> and we'll be back around to, to see all and to you too. And um, so, Henry, final thoughts from you. Um, firstly, when does this brand equity uh, magic start to hit market? And then you sort of some final takeouts on suggestions for for other brands and companies that are doing what both Angela and and uh, Kelvin are doing. Well, it's already live in market. You would have seen um, uh, Asahi Oceania were talking pretty publicly about it the other day. Um, right. So, so it's it is live. We're now in the process of getting all the data from our customers at the moment to kind of run to run through and activate that feature across the customer base. But we it's been fairly robustly tested now, which is so. All I'll say is that if it ends up being like you say it is, Henry, that is potentially quite game changing if it's robust. It, it is very robust. I mean, we've tested it across a whole number of different situations, verticals and categories before releasing, mm. and particularly for like model fit, model robustness, and also what you call back testing. So back testing is where we hold a piece of the, da- the data hidden from the model, and then we show it and let the model run some predictions on what would have happened, and the model is able to accurately kind of predict what happened. So that's a concept called back testing. Hedge funds use it all the time. To test their algorithms, we did the same thing. So, right. uh, so yeah, it's um, it's a really important milestone for us because it's about it's about showing the effect of long term brand equity and mm-hmm. and it's and it's linked to revenue growth. Something we all intuitively know, but something that's going to be increasingly important to maintain because I see the big risk this year as lots of brands going well. Actually, you know, maybe awareness and unprompted awareness and consideration and preference metrics they aren't that important in the mass market and that's the i mean that's the best way to take your uh, business from a, a mass market brand to a niche market brand is letting those metrics atrophy well so angela greenwood kelvin kane and henry innes really interesting conversation and trust me i'll be back to ask those questions in about three months i can't wait so thanks for joining pleasure thanks. thank you thanks thank everyone you. this mi3 audio edition was presented by paul mcintyre that's more producer nick slater music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.